Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Lyanda Lynn Hout. Lyanda is an award-winning author, naturalist, eco-philosopher, and speaker. Today, we discuss her newest book, Rooted, Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit. In the conversation, Lyanda and I discuss eco-philosophy, the crossroads of science, nature, and spirit, the power of solitude, wisdom, and love, the practice of memento mori, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Lyanda Lynn Hout. The first question that I wanted to start with, if I could, Lyanda, was how does it feel to have your new book rooted out in the world? You know, this is a complicated book release for me, to be honest. Of course, it feels great. This is a book that's, for me, it's more honest than anything I've written before. It's more intimate and revealing, and it delves into a lot of things that have um, touched on truth and meaning to me. And so it was a delight to be able to finally create this book and to offer it to the world. But as you know, it came out during a pandemic. And one of the beautiful things about being a writer is that when you bring your book to the world, you get to see readers and sign their pen with ink and hand it over into their physical hands. And so I did feel that loss in in bringing out this book. At the same time, I was strangely gratified that it came out in a time in which the topics that I discuss about connection with nature, about bringing our gifts to a world in crisis, has more significance maybe than it ever could have had at any other time that it came out. And so I feel um, grateful to maybe be able to offer this book in, in a way that is more significant than I had imagined it would be. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say it's a it's a beautiful book, not only to read, but to look at from the cover to the illustrations inside. I, I feel like I've been on a bit of a journey with you reading reading this book. So really enjoyed it. Thanks. I would love to call out, um, if I can, the illustrator of this book, Helen Nicholson. She's a young woman artist who lives in Brighton in England, which as a Jane Austen fan makes me very jealous. But (laughs) we, you know, I I saw some of her work in other books and uh, reached out to her and was so grateful that my publisher was on board with using her as an illustrator. And yeah, we were just, we were co-creating these illustrations. I mean, obviously I wasn't the artist. I, we, uh, kind of bounced ideas off of one another. And she always had some 
you know, brilliant insight. And it was so fun to be so much in, I felt like we were in the same imaginal headspace in, in creating these illustrations. And what I love about them is even knowing this book so well, when I look through it and I see the art that Helen created, I just feel like there's leaves and feathers that are going to fall out of the book, you know, like our beautiful treasured um, volumes that have gathered the, uh, the ephemera of life and they fall out when we return to them. I feel that that's happening with this book. And then I look, I think, oh no, it's just her enchanted work. So I'm <laughs> glad that you enjoyed them too. Yeah, it definitely works. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, so this is In Search of Wisdom. We're searching for, for timeless principles and practices for, for modern life but also interested in in the search a bit of a bit of the the journey kind of beyond the the bio if you if you will um so looking at your bio i see it it lists eco philosopher what is an eco philosopher and maybe what led you down this particular path thanks so an eco philosopher is a student of philosophy who focuses on ecology and the interconnection of life. And so for me, that started way back when I was in college and I was majoring in philosophy and I was interested in bird watching and ornithology. And so started going down the history of ornithology, just that rabbit hole of the history of our interaction with bird life as humans in many dimensions. And it brought me early on into that that way of thinking that permeated you know many different times in the history of human thought but in particular i'm going back to victorian times um late georgian and early victorian times when we had a, a body of knowledge called natural philosophy and darwin is a a, a great you know thinker to pull up in, in that light because he was a student of poetry and art and literature and philosophy and biology. And all of that was covered under this one umbrella of, of natural philosophy before we had these hard academic um, disciplines in order. And so um, for me, as a student, I thought of pure philosophy who is being drawn more deeply and deeply into the natural world. I loved finding the ways that ecology and philosophy met and interconnected. And it drew me deeply into the study of modern eco-psychology, more and more into the study of um, environmental ethics, which was just emerging when I was in college. And um, that has come to be a, a, a very popular uh, discipline now. So as I continued studying birds and creatures and becoming more competent as a naturalist, I also deepened my study of philosophy and um, went on to study environmental ethics in graduate school. And so that's, that's the label, eco-philosophy. I love the sort of interdisciplinary nature of it. How did you know at, at such a young age to basically choose that that path of philosophy as an undergraduate degree it, it seems there was many different paths you could have taken that that aligned with uh, with some of your interests but does anything come to mind you know it was in large part by chance Joshua I uh, was taking I intended to be a literary major a major in um, English literature 
and still did love studying Yeats and other, you know, uh, writers and thinkers in that vein. But I was taking an astronomy class my first semester in college, and it was right after lunch. And, you know, they turn out the lights and put up the stars, and I would just fall into a deep slumber (laughs) after my, you know, dorm food lunch. And it just, I I couldn't stay awake, and I couldn't make it through the class. And I thought, I just, I'm going to take this class another time when I'll be more awake and take something else. And one of the class, I had a friend who was taking an ethics class just a 100 level philosophy class. And the instructor was hilarious. And I was with a bunch of friends and we were just having fun and exploring ideas in this wonderful way. And I just thought I just kept doing it. So I I blame the astronomy class, (laughs) the after lunch astronomy class. I'm just not certain that I would have found my way to philosophy, you know, except by this chance. (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing a bit of a bit of background on your on your path. Um, getting into the book, you you start the book with a, a beautiful quote by Francis of Assisi that I I had not heard before. Our hands imbibe like roots, so I place them on what is beautiful in the world. What does this quote mean to you, Landa? You know, I. I came to that quote late in the writing of the book. It wasn't the first um, quote that I was going to open with. But um, as you know, Francis, St. Francis did appear in the pages of the book as a um, sort of interlocutor between humans and other ways of knowing in this in the story in the book. It's a wolf. So he already had a kind of a presence and had offered a sense of inspiration. And then because of the title of the book is Rooted, um, I'll just take you on a circuitous, an- circuitous answer to this question. Um, and do a little little side sidestepping here and, and say that the book wasn't titled Rooted until the very end. The working title was Frog Church for a long time. And then what I call the invocation or introduction to this book is still Frog Church, which we can talk about if you want. So um, finally, my... An editor at Little Brown spoke up and said, we're, I'm not, we're not publishing Frog Church. He really doesn't like frogs. And I just thought, who couldn't like frogs? So he just finally put his foot down and insisted that we change the title. And when I started playing with words and came to Rooted, it just felt so right. It felt so right yeah. to me. And so when I came to this uh, quote by St. Francis and I saw the word roots in the in his language i just thought it, it just all came together and it just all felt so right and also as you know this book was written and is coming out into the world in a time of crisis right health crisis climate crisis um uh, difficult cultural conversations around so many things and so the idea that our hands as extensions of our physical bodies could be placed on the beautiful and imbibe like roots spoke so deeply to the message of this book that um, we are in a time where we are allowing in, where we must allow in the difficulty and depth of the crises that we face. And yet we also can drink in and, and offer back great deep beauty that we imbibe through our roots. I just thought it was so, um, 
it just spoke to me so viscerally. I mean, when you read that quote, you can almost feel the sustenance and nourishment of the beautiful entering our bodies. When I, when I read it, it reminded me of a conversation from a couple months ago with a, an author, Kai Whiting. He's um, in academia and focuses on sustainability. And I was really curious what, you know, led someone to dedicate, you know, their life towards sustainability. And, and something that he mentioned was growing up through school each year, there was a tree that was kind of like that particular grades mascot. And there was, you know, a real deliberate effort to become acquainted, to get your hands in the soil, to become, you know, intimate. It makes me think about, you know, wisdom and the experience. And you write quite a bit about, you know, getting your feet on the on the soil, really a, a physical connection. How do you think about, you know, that experience and, 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 and uh, gaining a deeper wisdom, if you will? One of the themes in this book is about a multiplicity of intelligences and what I call an everyday animism in which we look at cultures across time and space who have acknowledged an inspiritedness in the natural world, in all things, not just things with blood and vertebrae, you know, but also trees and stones and rivers and skies. And um, I think trees are a beautiful place to start, as your guests commented, because we can identify with that sense of our feet being on the ground and sort of reaching into the ground as roots do with our arms and our hair as sort of branches and leaves that touch the wider world. And then trees offer too such this um, supportive living presence to us. And I think that it's really impossible to spend a lot of time with an individual tree um, with your ear close to the bark or as a, uh, Zen Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh recommends hugging the tree with deep attentiveness and presence and without caring how weird you look to the world. It's impossible to spend that kind of time, or as I recommend in my book, to read poetry to a tree and not maybe realize that the tree is not necessarily understanding the words that you're reading aloud in whatever language you're speaking, but maybe can somehow you're drawing into a kind of intimacy of shared space and shared um, language that is sacred and meaningful and that it's impossible to do any of these practices of coming into contact with a tree and then to walk by that tree in the future and not feel drawn with a memory of that intimacy that you shared. Mm. Um, I have those practices with some trees and forests near my home and I won't be thinking about time spent in the past with that particular tree. And I'll just kind of be walking along thinking my thoughts about, you know, that I need to go check Instagram. And all of a sudden this kind of visceral tingling will come over me. I'll think, what's, what's going on? And I'll look and I think, oh, that's the tree. I know you. <laughs> and you know me back. And I don't want to get too woo about this. I just think that when we take this time to really draw into um, deep connection, it it lasts beyond the moment that we are with another being. You share quite a few stories from your early childhood through the book and upbringing. And, and one that connected with me was when you were in the fourth grade 
you received the the story of a soul by Saint Therese of Lisieux. And I have a daughter who's in fourth grade this year, and that was in your Easter basket. And uh, and you really write about how you you devoured it. You re- it really spoke to you. And I'm curious if you can recall what. What was it about that book that that connected with you? Well, so Teresa Lucia was in uh, a 19th century saint. She's actually a contemporary of Darwin, but she was very sheltered in this kind of bourgeois provincial French village that she grew up in. And at age 15, she entered the, entered the Carmel as a cloistered Carmelite sister, uh, needed special permissions to do all that went all the way to the Pope to get this permission. And, um, but in a lot of that biography, it focuses on her childhood. And what I loved about her was that she was anything but normal. She was a very strange girl. (laughs) She uh, was enamored of silence. She saw the sacred in everything. She longed to enter the, enter this cloistered community, which, which she saw as a wilderness or a desert in which she could commit her love to the world. And when she grew up, and I don't think I recognize this in fourth grade, but I continue, I, I still continue study of um, this young woman's work. She died at age 24. So she was always young um, all of her life on earth. She came up with a sense of spiritual freedom that was very radical in maturity. It is very much like what we see in the Zen Buddhist tradition of bringing yourself wholeheartedly to a moment with full presence and recognizing that through that kind of attention, we can um, have this sort of bodhisattva-like broader impact in the world. Therese said, if you pick up a pin with love, you can save a soul. And there was just something about her eccentricity and the radical sense of love um, within the world that she carried that has always affected me. But yeah, I think it's funny. My mom put that in my Easter basket. All the other kids were getting chocolate bunnies. and um, But I was a reader and, and I just, yeah, fell in love with her wild eccentricity within this very... Um, protected environment in which she grew up. I still marvel at what she accomplished. The subtitle of of the book, Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit. Um, I wanted to read a quote from the book and and really kind of get into the, the crossroads of it. And the quote is from the theologian Thomas Berry. While we have more scientific knowledge of the universe than any people ever have, it's not the type of knowledge that leads to an intimate presence with a meaningful universe. Could you say say more on that and, and talk about what you mean by the crossroads? For so long, science and spirit have been considered to be different realms of knowledge. And in many ways they are. I mean, science brings us the absolute essential realm of fact which we know now in this time of the pandemic and climate crisis is, is absolutely, um, you know, the underpinning of knowledge of certain kinds of actions we need to take. And spirit has been, has been considered to be something different, something that doesn't have a place in science. And people who are um, often poetic leaning or very spiritually inclined sometimes don't pay as much attention to science, except when we really need it, maybe, um, as a way of knowing, because it's too objective. It's too, um, it separates, you know, 
um, things out instead of creating wholeness. And what I found in, you know, and I have to say, I had this, this subtitle from the very beginning. It's not like frog church that changed to rooted at the last, at the last minute. I started with this subtitle and I stuck with it because it was absolutely the right, um, coupling of words, science, nature, and spirit. Um, I have always felt that science and spirit have a lot of mutually reinforcing ways of knowing. And we see that especially in the what I think of as everyday mysticism. It doesn't have to be attached to a particular uh, religion, but it's more of a philosophical idea that we are um, all radically interconnected to all of life. And that is also the teachings of uh, the ecology uh, the science of ecology. And those two things mutually enforce one another. And I think that those who are poetically inclined and dismiss science as being too objective and too um, separate are neglecting to see a lot of the angles in modern science that are um, really showing us the magnificence of the unseen, that no matter how deeply we enter into sort of a mystical aura or a um, union with the natural world or with a naturalist's understanding of the natural world gained through observation, there are things in science that we could never figure out for ourselves. And so when we see the, this magnificence that is revealed in good science, it deepens our sense of, of poetic wonder and enchantment with the natural world. And likewise, um, I think science, especially through the work, the, the modern work in um, that we see with the um, interconnections of trees through the mycelial networks under earth that's coming um, to the fore in the work of Dr. Suzanne Samard and others, um, that that is bringing a very almost spiritual sensibility to science when we, when we see that sort of objectification of the others really breaking down in modern science. And so it opens us to this new vocabulary vocabulary of consciousness and of radical interconnection that is the realm of spirit as much it is, as it is of science. It seems to be fairly difficult for us to, to see the, the whole picture, to be able to hold these two things, whatever they may be simultaneously, whether it's nature, science, um, and you, you have some, some practices, I guess I would call them practices in the book, one being solitude. And you talk about solitude, being alone in nature is, is being essential. Why do you think that is? And, and how does that connect with, with maybe finding, finding that, that crossroad of, of nature, science and spirit? When we're with others, there are certain parts of our brain that are activated. Um, some psychologists call this the spotlight effect. It's really interesting. We tune in, tune our awareness into our concern over what others are thinking of us. <laughs> and we've all been there, right? And it's, it's sort of impossible not to. I, I heard a, a kind of a, a psychologist talk about our evolution in terms of how we think about that, how when we're teenagers 
or maybe when we're in our 20s, we say something in public or we're sitting in a room and we feel like, oh my God, everyone is looking at us and evaluating and thinking ill of everything that we do. And then maybe we're when we're in our 30s and 40s, we think, oh my gosh, I'm saying these stupid things and everyone noticed, but I don't care. I've risen above that. And then when we apprentice ourselves to mature adulthood in our 50s and 60s, we finally start realizing that no one was ever paying attention to us in the first place. But in terms of that spotlight effect, we're very, very attuned to, you know, our relationship to others in the room and the technologies that influence our, um, our day-to-day um, brain activity. And so when we take some time in solitude, and especially when it's, you know, when we can get into a couple few days where we can really start sloughing off that uh, concern over what others are thinking or even awareness of what others might be thinking of us. And we can leave technology behind and interrupt those habitual patterns of, of checking, 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 you know, what responses we're getting from the world. When we can leave that behind, we get into these layers of psyche that really begin to transcend our ego. And it is from that place. And for me, it, 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 it always, almost always takes a period of wandering through a lot of anxiety and, and fear of being by myself and that fear manifests more at night as it does for many of us. But after a little time, I can sort of settle into that and it sort of winnows itself away into a feeling of um, softness, of calm, of interconnectedness, of a great, just, yeah, just taking some spaciousness to let that ego awareness fall away. And it does. And so from that space, we can get into um, that idea that the coyote wandering by, the cicada singing, the tree that shelters our tent is are not all separate others, but we can enter into that sense of interconnectedness with more depth. You mentioned two or three days. There was something that came up on a previous podcast about staring at a an exercise of staring at a painting for three hours um and and the benefits kind of coming in that the second and third hour of of seeing the painting differently is that how you see and and why you suggest maybe instead of a one day you know solitude trip or or few hours how do you see day one versus day two day three of that solitude in, in nature for you Right. You know, and I say three days just because for most of us modern humans, that is sort of the limit of what we can imagine as possible. But even more, you know, if you can take find a wilderness experience of a couple of weeks or something that um, offers a lot, even more depth. But right, I think in those first minutes and hours and day, we have a lot of expectations. Um, we have a lot of uh, antsiness. It's hard to settle in. Uh, we think, are we doing it? You know, no, we're not doing it. It's working. It's not working. And we can't get our brains to still, it just takes a lot of time. And I do that exercise, uh, of long observation of a particular object when I work with people on nature writing or nature connection and, uh, read the story of, um, a naturalist who studied with Louise Agassi and he made him look at a fish for a week 
before he would even talk to him, he had to look at this, you know, preserved fish and then report back. And he'd have him have the student tell him everything that he'd learned about the fish in an entire day of looking at it. And he wasn't allowed to use a microscope or a hand lens or anything. He was allowed to draw and use pencil. And Agassi would just make fun of him and say, oh, no, you've seen nothing. Go back. Go back to your fish. <laughs> and he did this for days on end. And so I tried that experiment myself with a specimen of a crow when I was reading my book, Crow Planet. And I thought, I'm going to look at this crow for three days and not do anything else. And I did, you know, listen to Bach and maybe Bob Dylan while I was looking at my crow. And I did get a hand lens because I just couldn't help it. And I did have a glass of Chardonnay, which I don't think was allowed for um, Agassiz's student. But it really, by day three, I just started, maybe I was getting trippy from watching the crow for too long, but I started to see um, this depth of detail and this uh, interconnectedness of the structure of the crow with the crow's life in the world. And if I had stopped on day two, it just wouldn't have happened. So uh, yeah, when I work with writers or naturalists, I have them observe a natural object for an hour, which seems like an eternity to them after the first 10 minutes. And I just think, keep going and keep going. So yeah, the more time we can take to sort of peel back the layers and sink in, the more and more we will find. And I'll just one more thing about that with our modern technological habits. And, you know, I love, I love my phone. I love elegant technology. I love my iPhone, but I really rebel against becoming a cyborg (laughs) and being tethered to it. And so I find that when I take a day, um, without my phone or with other technology, it's not enough. I read a study that that suggested that we, our body starts moving in habitual directions a quarter of a second before our mind thinks up the idea of making that movement. And so I translated that into, you know, the finger reaching for the phone whenever we're in line or whenever we have a quiet moment. And I'm not sitting there thinking, I'm going to check Instagram now. I just, my finger just starts going. And then I think, oh, I guess, all right, well, we're on our way already. So it really, for me, takes more than a day to interrupt that habitual tendency. And so um, day two is sort of the in-between. And usually by day, that in-between of, oh, here I am heading that direction. I'm going to interrupt it and maybe settling into a different kind of spaciousness with technology. And then by day three, again, letting go to a deeper place. It seems like one of the the big obstacles that comes up is something you mentioned earlier, which is fear. Whether that's just solitude by itself or definitely solitude in, in nature can can bring about fear. And I was surprised to read as somebody experienced as yourself that when you're you know asleep alone in the woods that you're experiencing fear as well how do you navigate that fear and and still you know partake in this important ritual for you one of the stories i told in the book is about a hike that i took when i was younger up to up a secluded trail on mount rainier and it was a hot day and a long hike. And when I got there, it was already dusk and I was really exhausted. So I just had some soup and crawled into my <laughs> sleeping bag and tried to go to sleep. But that night, you know, I realized I hadn't seen anyone, you know, all day long. And I started hearing 
breezes and cracks of sticks. And I woke up and I thought, what am I doing here? My mom was right. I shouldn't be out here by myself. And, you know, what is it? It's a cougar. It's a, it's a bear. It's a man. And of course, for women, usually it's the thought, not so much of bears and cougars that frighten us, but, but that it might be a man. And I've talked to so many women and that is I know that we're in a period of gender fluidity, so I don't want to just focus on those dichotomies, but um, it is um, particular to women, this fear of aloneness in nature and men, um, the presence of men. So I thought about that in the middle of the night, and then I went back to the cougar and how I was going to be absolutely, you know, torn to shreds, and my mom would just find blood in my diary and would be sad forever, and I felt like I didn't sleep the whole night. It was just jumpy and jumpy in, but I must've fallen asleep because I woke up to this dawn and it was quiet outside. And I listened for the cougar and the man and the sticks. And I peered out my tent flap. And what I found was the mist rising on this gem of a small alpine lake. And I could already, you know, the sun was starting to just warm the earth and I could, um, inhale the fragrance of the alpine level firs. It was so beautiful. And I walked out and I just felt drenched in serenity. And I looked across the lake into the mist and there was a herd of elk and their hooves were just sort of chiming through the mist. And then on the lake was this pair of mergansers with their little baby downy merganserlets floating behind them. And I thought to myself, and this is going to answer your, get to the answer of your question about how I, I keep navigating this. I thought to myself, oh, I was nuts last night. Why would I think? Cause in my, in my tent, I thought I'm just going to get, I'm getting out of here. First thing in the morning, this was crazy. I don't want to be here. I'm going to go back to my cat. And instead I thought that was what would have happened if I just gotten up and rushed out of here, I would have missed this beautiful serenity. And I spent the day in great joy and great calm. And so that night, it started all over again, the night thoughts. And what I had to hold on to then was the feeling that I had in the morning. And I just thought, this is a cycle. I'm passing through. I've learned to just rest and recognize that as part of the cycle of solitude for me. And the more nights that I spend, the more it, it does seem to fall away and I can kind of enter into a calm when I go to sleep. But, you know, the, that alertness that we feel at night is an evolutionary tendency that has, um, that is a kind of intelligence. And so I don't want to snuff that entirely as well. Mm. That's really interesting. Do you kind of see that as when, when, when the fear maybe comes upon you? A, a bit of a, is this true? A bit of an analyzing that particular fear. You think of um, when it comes to, to thoughts of, of not necessarily immediately attaching ourselves to the thoughts and, and creating a bit of space. Is that how you think about navigating fear as well? Creating a bit of space? I do. I've definitely come to that as sort of taking a deep breath and, and having that exploration of, you know, am I, am I just reacting immediately with the uh, limbic system <laughs> fight or flight response? Or can I sort of take a pause and, and respond with a little bit of, and now I'm bringing rationality into something that isn't rational with a little bit of rationality, as you say, question that, is it true? Um, 
And the truth is, you know, I don't know <laughs> what's out there in the dark. And so um, do I have something to be afraid of? Maybe. But at the same time, I feel that um, that we are very, that with preparation and with knowledge, we are, while no challenging experience is absolutely safe otherwise or risk-free, otherwise it wouldn't be a challenge. Um, worthwhile challenges often has have a risk involved. But mm. if we are prepared and knowledgeable, we are as safe in the wilderness as we are doing many other activities that involve risk, like walking um, down a city street <laughs> or driving a car. And um, we've, in modern times, we've really... Um, created a we've we've really focused on wilderness as a source of fear and the idea that we have to do certain things to be safe in the woods um and that has gotten extreme i mean we see that in you know many dimensions of modern culture and the way that we protect ourselves and our children um but for me the benefits of solitude are and the risk involved the essential risk involved with that are, are, are beautiful and worthwhile mm. i'm a big fan of the show alone on the history channel <laughs> have you ever are you familiar with the show land you know so many people have told me about it and recommended it to me and I am going to get to it. And, and no, you're right. It does sound like something I would, would delight in watching. So I, I just haven't gotten to it yet. Well, for the listeners that also may not be familiar with it as well, it's essentially a survival show of, of uh, 10 contestants that are experienced individuals and they're essentially all dropped in separate locations in remote areas to to survive. And I've really been struck by the deep appreciation that so many of the contestants have for the land, the, the actual place. I mean, you think they, they build their shelter. Um, and it's we, we don't have that connection. You know, obviously, we're living in shelters that are also, you know, made with these same materials that they're that they're building their shelters with, but they have a deep appreciation. Same thing when it comes to uh, finding any sort of food. I mean, it's a it's a real um, connection that they're experiencing. How do we get that? Any thoughts on you know us that maybe aren't going to participate in a in an alone <laughs> survival show? Um, create a deeper connection with uh, with with nature. Yeah, I think that you're touching on something really important, Joshua. Uh, the researcher uh, Yoshifumi Miyazaki in Japan, whose work grounds the modern what's called forest bathing movement, who researched the human connection with nature over time, points out that we have spent 99.9% .9 we humans of our evolutionary history outside of the built environment, the you know human built environment, and even less of that outside of the technology technological environment that we're in now. And so our lack of direct, and we spend 93% of our life indoors, mm. <laughs> um, outside of connect in those built environments, those built technological environments. And so he suggests that we are, um, 
because we're disconnected with this ground and this sort of intimate belonging that we have evolved to inhabit. Uh, without that, we are in a constant stress state. Our bodies aren't meant to be living separate from the natural world and in contact with all of these screens of technology. And so a lot of our modern stress comes from that. And he, he has shown us in his work that when we are allowed even to just walk in the natural world for 15 minutes, our limbic system calms and our parasympathetic nervous system, the one that is involved with our balance and well-being and, and um, serenity is activated in a positive way. And so I love that you're bringing up the idea that our households are made of the stuff of the world. And I think that that is a wonderful meditation to have to look at something in your house and sort of go deep and cultivate that mystical understanding that the wood that is surrounding us is also a tree and also connected to soil and earth and light and sky and starlight and rain and the sun. And this is a, um, a meditation that Again, Zen Buddhist master Thich Nhat Hanh invites us to have with a piece of paper. He says that a poet will see that this piece of paper contains the whole world, all of those things I just mentioned, um, the hands of the people that made it. Um, but that is true. It, it's not just that a, a poet will see that. An ecological scientist would also see that. So we're getting back to that connect, um, connection of science, nature, and spirit. Um, so having that meditation that the stuff that surrounds us is the stuff of, of the world, the fine stuff that we are made of as, of as well. Um, but I talk about in my book some practices. One is um, the practice of taking off our shoes and walking and la- allowing those thousands of hundreds of thousands of nerve endings um, that we usually imprison in shoes that are on the bottoms of our feet and sort of the beautiful ranginess of our tendons and bones when they're allowed to spread out on a natural and changing substrate, um, that that invites a kind of intelligence and connection that's very beautiful. Um, I talk about the idea of a sit spot or a still place in the natural world where we find a place in our backyard or in as wild a place as we can situate ourselves in the world. Um, if we have a forest available to us or a beach or just a park with a beautiful tree um, that we can return to again and again and again. And that kind of practice of returning to one place and spending 20 minutes in stillness without technology, but doing it over and over cultivates an awareness of intimacy um, and so possibility of intimacy, not just with that one place, but in places um, beyond the one place that we go, if that makes sense. That possibility of intimacy makes us realize that it's not just possible in that place, but beyond that place. Um, but that returning and returning and returning gives us this familiarity with the movement of the seasons and the changing needs and presence of the beings all around us. And so um, that's another invitation I also, I know this can be a little dark, but here we are heading into autumn and October and that um, kind of decomposition of the world into the seeding darkness that will germinate the spring and the celebration of Samhain and um, All Hallows Eve at the end of October, um, what time that we think about death. Many, many of the great philosophical and spiritual traditions across um, time and space, again, have focused on keeping... Uh, awareness of our own death before us in our life is an invitation to empathize with the ephemerality of all of life and to live our own moments and lives with fullness and with gratitude and with a sense of 
the sacredness of an embodied incarnation, you know? And so I think that um, when we go into the natural world and we find the bodies of dead things to kind of stand a moment in reverence and acknowledgement of all of us being on that path of a nature that will eventually swallow us whole, but also to meditate upon, you know, our, 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 our own end of life as a, as a mirror, as a, as a, as a guide into deepening our relationship with our own lives. What do you think nature can teach us about dying? One of the things that I, I live here in the Pacific Northwest um, in Seattle. And so this is the land of Western red cedars and, you know, Douglas firs. And when we walk into a forest here, the cedar trees are made of this beautiful, soft, red, fragrant bark. And so it's easy when they fall to the earth, um, the mosses start sort of breaking down their bark and their wood easily because it's so soft. And so we can see decomposition in action. You know, the the part of the cedar tree that is on the earth is breaking down into this beautiful red soil that we can see under our feet. And at the same time, the mosses on top of the tree have, um, or the log have broken it down. Their rhizomes are breaking it down so that the ferns uh, begin growing into these great tangles of um, life. And so we see death and life at the same time ever before us so we can just see our place in that spiral I, i've done the experiment i think all of us can do that maybe if we're in a place now as autumn is coming on the leaves are falling we can sort of lie on our backs in the leaves and sort of feel our shared um, um eventuality of decomposition and i know again that might sound kind of macabre but i just find it very freeing and beautiful to lie on my back among the leaves returning to soil to look at the sky which you know um if things go well will be our last view of the earth you know upwards from trees into the sky our last view in this life um so i love sort of making that connection and lying on these these logs which are called nurse logs or mother logs by um Samard, in which we learned, I learned way back in Girl Scouts when I was young, to think of them as mother or nurse logs. Lying on there, you can almost, if if the world is silent, you can sort of almost hear the mosses breaking down the trees. And I get a sense of myself, you know, there allowing the heaviness of my body on the log and thinking, I wonder how long it might take before I start feeling that, you know, the reaching of the mosses and rhizomes into my own skin. And I think, oh my gosh really not long at all. <laughs> it's just, we can enter in to our place in that life, death, life spiral um, by observing what's right in front of us in the natural world. And I think that's a very significant lesson. Mm. You reference in the book, this, the organization, the, the order of the good death, which I was bouncing around on, on their website in, in this idea of a, a natural burial could you speak to what is a natural burial and, and maybe why that should be something we should think about? Mm -hmm. One of the things that the organization of the good death says, and it's just, it's just an organization that is trying to increase our awareness of um, possibilities that take us beyond sort of the, um, some of the modern habits of the funeral system, like embalming and um, 
So they're trying to invite us into alternatives for that. And what I love what they say that a natural burial is actually just a burial. (laughs) (laughs) It's just burying the body in the earth and allowing the processes of decomposition to work. And that's becoming a great um, movement in this country and other and, and elsewhere. So the idea is the invitation is that um, we enter most, most fully into an honoring of our death when we allow ourselves the um, natural return to soil. And so um, natural burial cemeteries are offering people the chance to be buried right into the earth with nothing but a simple cotton shroud has to be organic, nothing synthetic at all. And to oftentimes even not have a stone marker placed over our, our um, burial place, but to have a simple natural stone placed there. They keep track of the burials via GPS. And so many people are finding a, a beautiful satisfaction in that. And, you know, when we look at the the rest of the natural world, other than human, most bodies are returned to the soil through decomposition directly upon the earth or in the oceans, or um, oftentimes uh, bodies are scavenged by other creatures and so bring nourishment to the world. And so it's a great radical ecological step to take to um, make the offering with the end of our lives. And I know that these are very difficult and personal decisions. And so I don't want to sound like there's any judgment here from me about what other choices people make or choices they have made for their loved ones in the past. I don't think there should be any regrets or second guessing about, about those choices that are meaningful for us. But we're standing at a moment now where we can go forward with maybe an invitation to a broader thinking about what happens to our bodies post-life and how that can bring um, a different kind of solace. Mm. I love that. I thought it was a beautiful way to to wrap up the book. And it's, like I said in the the beginning, yeah, just a really beautiful, beautiful book. This idea, as you you mentioned, uh, memento mori or meditating on our, our mortality, kind of a paradox, I guess it, it, it seems at, at first glance that it may be something that would get you a bit down, but you know some of the the ancient wisdom of the past speaks of it as as an inspiring thing that can help us you know live in in the moment and live a live a meaningful life. How would you say meditating on your mortality influences your your daily life or daily actions? It definitely makes me feel a deepened sense of gratitude, a deepened sense of wanting to live with a radical openness to the moment and also wanting to live with generosity to others because when we're open to our own death, we recognize so deeply the ephemerality of our lives and the the ways that we sort of over outfit our physical bodies. I'm just looking around if uh, Joshua can see me here. So I'm sort of looking around at all of my books and my technology and my binoculars and uh, my closet that has more clothes than I need in it. And we really, yeah, we do over out, over outfit these ephemeral physical bodies. And so it helps me, that kind of meditation helps me to let um, my own materialism kind of fall away. And not that I'm successful at that, but it, it, it inspires me at least to try to do that more and more in my life. Um, And I do want to say that, you know, in the book, I talk about how 
I sat down with my husband and gave him some sort of ideas about what I wanted to happen at the end of my life. I told him that I didn't want to be unplugged right away, you know, that we're coming in and there's a lot of science that's recognizing that our, the death of our cells, um, takes a lot longer. This, our cellular body takes a lot longer than, um, that moment that we're declared dead, um, clinically the moment that our brain stops working in certain ways and our heart stops um, pumping blood through our bodies, um, that it takes a longer time for our cellular bodies to kind of finish up hours or days. And I kind of wanted mine to get settled in before I was <laughs> after my death, maybe settle in before you, you throw me in the refrigerator. Um, so I invited Tom to maybe, you know, if I'm plugged into the hospital respirator to maybe go home and watch all of all seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and read Anna Karenina and just take some time to, um, I gave him the, the number of a death midwife to call to help him sort of with decision-making. And I gave him the name of the natural cemetery that I thought looked beautiful. And then I said, and I really want to be buried in a, in a, um, organic linen flowy dress, you know, nothing too fitted, but you know, I, I gave some ideas of ruffles and he looked, he was doing fine till we got to the dress and then he looked absolutely terrified. Um, and I thought, Oh my gosh, how will my husband, <laughs> of course he can handle all of this stuff, but he can't figure out a organic linen hand sewn dress. So I told him not to worry that I would make the dress and I have been making the dress and I'm embroidering the, um, embroidering the um, hems of the dress with quotes that are beautiful to me from Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman about death and Joy Harjo. Remember, you are the skin of the earth. I love that. Um, So one of the things I thought about in reading this book, when I talk about, you know, I have skulls in my study and I have um, this dress that I'm making and, and thinking about this meditation that's beautiful and, as you say, inspiring, I feel that I had to come back around and say, I know this might sound um, like I'm very lighthearted about it, but actually it is the opposite. I am, I am very confused and unwilling to fully face that question that I will eventually at, at some time that I don't know, um, have to bridge fully. And I'm just not there. And so all of these things are things that I hold onto in walking with that question over time. Um, uh, yeah, I just, I just sound, I, I don't want to sound as if I'm glib about it or if I've settled into that question with, with the kind of transcendent wisdom, because I just haven't. So these things um, are tools for sort of seeking eventually, I hope, that wisdom. Well, that's great. This is, our time has flown by. I'm, I'm really grateful to be able to connect with you. And, and speaking of wisdom, we have a couple kind of standard wrap-up questions, if I could run by you. And the first one is, how do you define wisdom? For me, wisdom doesn't have an absolute definition, but I see it as an openness to exploring how we can most fully, beautifully, authentically, and generously inhabit this one life. Um, It's the question Thoreau asked when he went to Walden Pond, and it's the question, you know, poet Mary Oliver asked most beautifully and famously, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? So I think wisdom is settling into the facing of that question with as much depth and authenticity as we can gather an ongoing path and process never finished. That's beautiful. And on the, on the flip side of that, if we think about maybe wisdom and love as the 
you know, two sides of the same coin. Um, we generally discuss maybe educating the heart, if if you will. There's a quote by Anthony DeMello that I, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on. And um, it's in the book, The Way to, the Way to Love. If it is love that you desire, then set out on the task of seeing. As you do this, the hard protective shell around your heart will soften. Um, I'm curious, you know, what that quote means to you and if there's any thoughts on ways that we might be able to soften our, our hearts a bit in this complex world. Oh, you know, it brings up for me um, another quote, if I may, because I talk about uh, monastic traditions and charisms in this book. And um, there's, I, I spent a lot of time writing and thinking at a women's Benedictine monastery not far from my home. And um, St. Benedict in the 1400s in Italy was having holy conversation with his twin sister, St. Scholastica. And he was unveiling for her this great rule of how monastics should live. It's a rule that exists today and, and influences um Thomas Merton's Trappist order and even many Buddhist orders and people seeking that kind of community. Um, and he was giving all of his rules and his advice. And uh, St. Scholastica said to him, she took Benedict's hands and she says, brother, just stop, stop and listen with the ear of your heart. Listen with the ear of your heart. And I think that this is something we've been talking about um, in, in this hour, Joshua, is that sort of sinking beyond rationality into a different way of listening and knowing. And for me, it also goes back to that imbibing through the roots of our hands, you know, just touching what's beautiful. And for me in this time, I've been thinking a lot about love and what that means and how the definition of that is evolving. So many of us are sitting around kind of regurgitating daily the news to one another. I mean, we see it all morning and then we're affected by it in this pandemic time by our isolation and separation. And then when we talk to one another, that's again what we're talking about. And I understand that need to sort of process, but I'm really working on trying to take myself out of that impulse to regurgitate the negative and the fearful and speak to the beautiful, imbibe the beauty with the roots that are growing out of my hands and feet and just allowing myself and I hope others around around me to kind of share in that taking in and mirroring back and speaking back with purposefully speaking back the beautiful in love. So just sort of resisting that temptation to just fall under the fearful at all times, to dwell in it, to honor it, but to reflect back beauty when we can is an act of love in this time, I think. And to do that, we often fall beyond the rationality. We honor the great factual um, knowledge that science brings us and then also bring to that, this kind of falling under our rationality into the ear of our heart where we're listening for something true and deep that we can bring to the rest of our rational understanding. What a lovely way to, to wrap up the show. This has been great. Where do you point people, Lyanda, interested in, in learning more about you? I um, My favorite way to interact with people is my newsletter. So uh, I just think that it's the most personal 
I, I think of when I'm writing them, I think that I'm actually writing letters to people. It's the closest thing I can come. So on my website, lyandalynhelp.com, there's a link, contact link to signing up for my newsletter. And on social media, I love Instagram. I'm at lyandahelp there. And I'd love to um, be in conversation with everyone further. All right, great. Lyanda, I, I thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.